Welcome to On The Continent, your one-stop shop for everything to do with European football, not least the Euros. I'm Dotson Adebayo. And I'm Andy Russell. And Andy, uh, you have gone Europe hopping uh, to one of the locations that uh, are significant for the Euros. Where are you? Where are you today, I should say? Uh, Budapest, which is uh, remarkable for, of course, having full stadiums uh, during during these these Euros, which is a, a pretty arresting experience. It's um, it's extraordinary. It is weird, but it's great. It adds a lot to the atmosphere. Mm. I'm not sure about the full stadiums in terms of safety for us. Uh, we're British, after all. We wouldn't go to any of those bathhouses without getting both our jabs, would we, Andy? You wouldn't be allowed in, Don, <laughs> as I've found. <laughs> yeah, perhaps we don't have time to go into that. But so far, the Euros, have you been enjoying them? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been fantastic. Uh, most of the matches have been pretty engaging. I think in terms of the overall football, the entertainment has been way, way above the level that I was actually expecting after not just one long season, but two long seasons sort of meshed into each other. And long may it continue. Yeah, as people would have gathered, it's going to be a slightly different look on OTC uh, for today's episode, as we're hoping... Uh, to speak to all of our contributors uh, today. So you're in Budapest. Uh, we'll be speaking to Lars Severston as well and David Cartledge. They're all dropping by to talk through some of the biggest stories from the first week of the Euros. And the one and only Nikki Bandini is here as well. Nikki! Hi, Dotson. How are you? I'm very well, thanks very much. I had to give you the big introduction because your lot, Italy, flipping egg. They're doing pretty well. Yeah, it's quite something, huh? It's it's hard not to feel giddy about it at the moment, honestly, Dotton. Like I'm, I I had really high hopes for this Italy team. I thought uh, they'd been so impressive for such a long time under Roberto Mancini, but of course, it's almost um, there's always going to be a sort of an, uh, a nervousness about sticking your neck on the line and saying, "Oh, this team's going to be good. Look out for them," and thinking, "Will they live up to it?" And so far, I think. Living up to it would be understating things by some way. They've been brilliant. Nikki, before we get to the football, did it already start in the opening ceremony? Because the Stadio Olimpico in Rome, it's a it's a venue and a half anyway. But it, it felt to me that quite a lot of the time, and obviously a lot of us are, are watching the games on television, it's impossible to it would be impossible to be everywhere if we we're in normal times. But um, it felt like a moment that really captured the zeitgeist and captured how everyone was feeling. And normally it feels as if the opening ceremony, it's a bit like a support act when you go and see a band. It's a contractual clause you have to fulfill before getting to the main event, but no one particularly enjoys it. But with this, it felt as if everyone was, yes, we're enjoying something as a collective group of people all over again. And then... Andrea Bocelli singing Nessun Dorma. How much do you think this played into what a joyous occasion that first night in Rome was? And obviously Italy continued that with the football. Yeah, well, it, it's really fascinating because, of course, I sort of have this dual perspective always with tournaments. And I think there's this definite um, English perspective, isn't there, about football coming home because it's a Euros and the final's going to be in Wembley, but I think um, for Italy that's gone since 1990 without having uh, a major tournament to host, getting to start the tournament on home soil, especially after the, it's not just a year anymore, is it? The, the, the year and a half that we've all gone through, but which in Europe at least hit Italy first. You know, COVID really decimated um, some Italian towns before it had really got across Italy. And it was this national tragedy there it felt like for a lot of Italians before it became an international tragedy within Europe at least and I think this um, moment in front of uh, Europe and in front of the world of, of having Bocelli who of course is a, a, a national um, monument you want to call him even though he's a person uh, and having the the tournament kick off in Rome and then for it to kick off with a game that was so that showed off everything that's good about Italian football right now. I think there was a lot of catharsis in that moment. Although, of course, 
look, the pandemic hasn't gone anywhere. It's still ongoing. And that's still a very real daily struggle. I think it was still a, a very sort of needed and felt moment in Italy. I, I for one, <clears throat> thought that opening match was still, oh, I wasn't completely convinced by Italy on the opening match. I thought, oh, I know, okay, Mickey, <laughs> give me a moment. Give me a moment. I just thought they didn't qualify for the last major tournament. This time they're 3-0 up against Turkey. Is this a little bit of a flu call with Turkey under par by that second match yesterday? And the what I consider to be the goal of the tournament so far from Locatelli, I, I just have to say, look, um, oh, so mio. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I get it. Um, Turkey was so bad in that first game and so unambitious that I suppose it would be easy if you hadn't been watching this team um, much beforehand to go, look, this is a one-off game against a terrible team and all they did really was was um, take the chances against a team that was not even trying to come out of its own half. I think this is the thing, I think I described it, I can't remember if I've, I'm sure I said this on Twitter if nowhere else, Italy, for those of us who have been following closely over the last three years under Mancini, it has felt a bit sometimes like this is your favourite like indie band that no one knows about. And <laughs> and now they've suddenly gone mainstream and it's a bit panic inducing actually because you're thinking, are they actually as going to play to everyone else like they play to me? And so for me, that, that game against Turkey was very much confirmation of a trend, okay? Because I'd seen them play like this. I saw them play like this all through the qualifying campaign building towards better and better towards the end. Saw them play like this um, in this this year in the spring when we had the international games. Saw them play like this in the last warm-up game against the Czech Republic, who they thumped 4-0. That's a whole separate narrative, by the way, that I'm enjoying, that I've heard a lot of people, a lot of people, even still in the British media saying, well, Italy still have to prove they can do it against one of the, the good teams. And then at the same time saying, well, Czech Republic, that's a good team in England's group. So there seems to be some some mismatch between some of what's being said on that. But look, I can understand if you came to Italy cold at this tournament. And I don't mean that in a sort of critical way, because look, nobody can watch all of these teams. I had ideas about the Turkey national team that have been thoroughly swept away from me because they aren't a team I get to watch as often. Um, but having having followed this story with Mancini over the last few years, this is very much the Turkey game was confirmation of a trend rather than some isolated result out of nowhere. Nikki, I want to come on to in a minute to us talking about Mancini and the effect he's had and the sheer joy of Italy playing. Because I think if we take it a few steps further forward, the idea of, and this is taking it a few steps further forward, of a team winning a tournament playing this sort of football rather than playing containment sort of football is kind of revolutionary in the modern era. But say, for example, let's go forward. Let's keep waving your Italian flag that I know you've got on the roof there that I can see. And let's say that Italy were to go on and win it. West Ham always talk about how they won the World Cup in 1966. Are Sassuolo going to be saying that at the end? Because two players who even for those of us that watch Italy didn't have down as definite starters, Domenico Berardi, and obviously because of the absence of Marco Verratti, Manuel Locatelli, have made immense impressions so far. So is it going to be Sassuolo what won it? I, I love I love the way that came together. I love it. That's a beautiful uh, parallel with West Ham. Um, I suppose West Ham and Sassuolo in some sense, have very different identities because uh, the story of, of West Ham, well, they've never been one of the, the big clubs in the capital. They're still a capital city club, whereas in Italy, we talk all the time about provincial clubs. Sassuolo are provincial. They're from a, a small town um, and their success as a club very much is owed to um, not some sort of foreign intrusion. It's a local businessman, uh, Squeenzy, who poured his own money into the club, uh, having made 
well, his family made heaps and heaps of money making industrial adhesives. And they've made this modern progressive club with its own stadium in a country where not many clubs have them. Um, Sassuolo have gone through many iterations of playing impressive and unexpected football in the last few years. And if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, we would have been talking about Eusebio Di Francesco and, and everything he was doing right there. Over the last couple of years specifically, though, they've had Roberto De Zerbi, who is this, I would say, um, am- ambitious to the point of reckless manager. He, he's someone who <laughs> wants to play football. In his mind, it's like a version of of the Pep Guardiola ideal. It's pass it out from the back. It's we're going to um, beat you by being more progressive, by having more of the ball, by being more um, ambitious with, with how, what we do with the ball. But as a as a sort of reality Sassuolo, very often it was um, suicidal for them as a football team because this season they scored, I can't think how many goals they scored, but they conceded more than 50. They conceded more than 50 goals in the league and it didn't matter because they could win games 3-2 and 4-3. And Locatelli is the one player who I think has grown probably the most under Deserbi because he was this extremely bright, sparkling talent who came out actually started off in the Atalanta youth system, got picked up by Milan, went to Milan, made his Serie A debut at 18, scored, scored again against um, Juventus a few weeks later, looked like he was going to be the next big thing. And then, you know, as teenagers are prone to do, lost his way a little bit, didn't quite progress in the way everyone hoped. Milan were going through heaps of turmoil in terms of constantly changing their managers, changing ownerships, not having a clear direction. He disappears off to Sassuolo. It's something that he talked about as really upsetting for him at the time. He thinks that his career is ending because he's young and he sort of has not enough perspective yet. And he thinks that Milan don't want him and he's not good enough. He goes to Sassuolo and it takes a minute. It doesn't happen overnight. But Deserbi comes in and wants to play this kind of football where it's one touch, don't hold on to the ball. Every time you get the ball, you're looking for the next progressive pass because we are constantly going to attack. It's all we're going to do. And he's become so good there. Um, he's become the, the player in Serie A this season who played the most passes in the whole league. He's become so integral to what they do. Look, when Italy lost Verratti, I was saying this at the time. It's one of those times where I can say I was right. But still, Verratti is a, a huge set of shoes to fill. He's someone who's been so fundamental to the national team playing alongside Jorginho. But... Um, Locatelli, I think he wasn't so great in the first game, but the second game you really saw what a player he's become under Deserbi. And you also saw the connection that he has with Berardi. And I think everyone's talking about Locatelli right now because he scored the two goals. The fact that Berardi didn't need Chiesa to get injured, he's just been started the two games on the right of attack for Italy, shows you again how much Deserbi has helped his game to improve, how much he's impressed Mancini over the last two years because... Look, Mancini was predisposed to love Chiesa as well. And Chiesa is another really valuable and valued player in this team. But Berardi has just been better for the national team. And I think both of those uh, players owe a lot to Deserbi and Sassuolo. And nothing provincial about the way Italy have gone about their business so far. But can they go all the way, Nikki? When are they going to get found out, as it were? I, I really don't know, Dutton. I, I, I want them to go as far as they can. And playing like this, it's it's um it's almost disarming because when has a team ever started a tournament winning 3-0 and 3-0 and gone on to win the thing? I can't remember a time like that. So part of me expects the big bad to be around the corner and something to come undone. But I I really reject this idea at the same time that oh, they haven't beaten anybody and and what are they going to do against a, a better team? Because I just don't buy it. They haven't conceded a goal in 10 games. Um, these are not things that you do if you're not capable of mixing it with with really good teams. Nicky, let's go back to Mancini. Um, I, I mean, he's done an incredible job in charge of Italy in terms of creating a playing identity, in terms of making it fun, in terms of making them fun to watch as well. Given that people thought he was on the wane, certainly through those spells at Galatasaray, the second spell at Inter, um, and uh, then at Zenit, where it didn't really work out either, 
he was desperate for this job. How is it that it's revitalized him and he's revitalized them? I think there's so many layers to what's happened with Italy. And I think for some of it, you actually need to go back because everyone naturally goes back to 2018 and the disaster under Ventura. But I think you actually need to go back even further. I think you need to go back to the aftermath of the um, 2010 World Cup and the sort of hand wringing that went on after Italy went out in the group stage and uh, Arrigo Saki comes in and starts looking after the, the, the youth sector for a while. And that didn't last forever. It was four years. But I think that some of the ideals that he insisted on back then of Italy trying to play more progressive football were embedded into young players like Locatelli at the time, like Bedell at the time, who were playing in the under-15 setup, and have come through. And I think that is all part of this story. But I think what Mancini has done is he's really embraced what's going on in Italian football. You brought up the Sassuolo story, and I'm glad you did, because I think it's such a, a beautiful thread inside this Italian team. But Berardi and Locatelli are still only two players. What's going on in Italian football is comes from Sassuolo, but it comes from Atalanta. It comes from Napoli, who played wildly attacking football this season. It comes from all of the different um, teams in Italy that have actually been playing progressive football in recent years. And perhaps some of that in turn comes from going back to Saki and the fact that a generation of young Italian kids were brought up trying to play a different kind of football. But I think that Mancini's great strength and the thing that I think puts him so much in um, contrast to what came before him with Ventura is that he said, okay, like he didn't say, I have an idea of the football we have to play. He said, look at all this young talent I've got. He did these huge training camps, calling in all sorts of players. He had players in those training camps like Zaniolo who were being called up to Italy before they'd even played in Serie A, before they'd made their debuts. And I think that's what ultimately has produced this side. Everyone always talks about this in international football. You want your international team to feel like a club team. And I think that for a lot of this Italy team, it has that vibe to it because while there are the sort of older statesmen, your Chiellinis, your Bonucci's, there's this generation of players who've come up together and have played a certain way together. And I think Mancini's greatest um, success, he's been ambitious with his football he's tried to impose the same impose introduce the same ideas that he did at City let's press high up the pitch let's play on the front foot let's not trust stop once we score one goal but I think his first and foremost what he's done is accept the identity of the players he has and and make them into something together that's a great breakdown and thank you for that because uh, now it makes a lot of sense to me and I'm sure it does to many of our listeners as well. I look forward to speaking to you very soon because it can only get better, surely. Nikki, thank you. Fingers crossed. Jó lehetőség, elcsúszik a védő, és ön gól! Berardi beadása után bepattan a labda a törökről. Before we get carried away, we're talking about how well Italy are doing. We ought to take a look at some of the other contenders as well, Andy, not least uh, France. And arguably, you can't ever rule out the Germans, can you? Good job that Lars is here to talk us through what happened in that game. Um, Lars, France looked the business, but Germany, what do they look like to you? Um, okay, so there, there are some positives for Germany. Uh, I do think that that, that uh, Yogi Love has kind of sort of stumbled on something that might work here with this team, but 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 stumbled on is very much the operative word. I mean, this is a team that's sort of uh, changed the way they uh, the way they line up, the way they play uh, a lot of a lot of times in the last couple of years, bringing back the old the old guard, which is probably the right 
decision. I think in hindsight, it's understandable that they wanted to turn a corner after that disaster at the World Cup. But also, you know, th- that was a significant amount of babies being thrown out and very little bathwater, I think, in, in hindsight, that was quite clear. And, and, and having failed to find a new direction or, or anything like it in the absence of these uh, experienced players, I think it made sense to bring Hummels and, and Thomas Miller back. That's all fine. And this sort of 3-4-3 three, three formation they've stumbled upon, I think it could work. Uh, we saw some positive tendencies here. They, they moved the ball quite well at times. I do think that sort of the sort of fluid trio of Harvard, Snabry and Miller up front can be good. But what concerns me, it does feel like they've stumbled upon this team almost, like going into the tournament. This is, the, the first time we really saw the team in this shape was in the friendly league against Latvia the other week. And and there are some shortcomings. And when you come straight up against what is, in my opinion, the best team uh, in, in the tournament, obviously that's a bit tricky. And I think France, as a team expose some of the inherent weaknesses in this Germany team, which I'm not sure it's possible for Leo to fix. One of them being is that they are a little bit short of pace at the back. Uh, and, and if you are a bit short on pace at the back, coming up against Kylian Mbappe is, is not ideal. Uh, the, the other thing is that they don't have an obvious sort of focal point. They don't have a big number nine. I mean, we keep saying they haven't replaced Miroslav Klose, but they haven't. Like, they don't have that kind of figure. Or, or even a Mario Gomez they don't have. Um, and, and, and as much as I like the sort of fluid Serge Gnabry and Havertz and Miller sort of running around a bit thing, there were a lot of situations where Kimmich was like in really good crossing positions and there just weren't anyone in the box for him to aim for really. Like you, you can't really fling the ball into the box here. And when the France team were so happy to sit back as much as they did and wait for counter-attacking opportunities, if you don't have a physical presence in the box to aim crosses for, it becomes really difficult. So I think tactically it was a tricky matchup for Germany. Ominously for Germany, I think a lot of the same things are true when they face Portugal. So it could be a bit sort of dicey this <laughs> for the I mean, in terms of their progression out of the group, um, but yeah, the show the very the, the the short answer here is I I kind of it is kind of the outcome we expected and kind of the game we expected really. Yeah, I think that's right, Lars. And before I continue, I must congratulate you that when you're on. Uh, Closer and Gomez. We didn't quite get to Sandra Wagner, um, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's felt in moments like they they, they might need to, to to go to that place. It's, it's lovely to have an amorphous front three, and uh, in practice, in theory, sorry, that that should work quite well when you have to think outside the box to break down a team like France, or as you were saying. Um, break down a team like Portugal going forward into the second game in Munich on Saturday, which is absolutely crucial. Um, but I, I do feel that even though France played a second half that was quite different to the first, I mean, in, in terms of, we'll come to France in a minute, but in terms of what they did, they played as if they were the best team in the tournament in the first half. And in the second half, they played with that very... Russia 2018, break us down, we dare you sort of approach. So given that, really France took this kind of Atletico Madrid style approach to the, the, the second period of um, we, we will see this out and let's see what you've got. And the, the Germany weren't able to come up with anything for that really. You know, they have very, very few chances despite having – more of the ball. There was that Gnabry shot that ended up on, on, on the roof of the net, um, but not in it, unfortunately, from a, a, a Germany perspective. I, I guess the thing that it all comes down to is the third place teams, because again, I, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves here, but if we imagine they were to lose to Portugal at the weekend, they could still end up hammering Hungary and if we're assuming, obviously, the France game is only a 1-0, let's guess that Portugal-Germany will be a fairly low-scoring game as well because, um, you know, Portugal likes to roll in, in a certain way. Then Germany go and roll over Hungary with some comfort in game three, and that's probably enough to to get them through to the, the next stage. Quite how well they will do in the knockout stage because of those not particularly fixable faults that Lars talked about. And even if they were fixable, I'm not really sure that Jürgen Love has the imagination to, to do that. Obviously, he's the manager that won the World Cup in 2014. 
there's a lot of goodwill as he's in the last part of his tenure, but he shouldn't really still be in the job. You know, they 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 failed in Russia in 2018, as as, as Lars said, and he's had a lot of time to work it out and made very little progress in in, in doing so. And the ultimately, they have a lot of talent on the pitch, which is not really able to express itself in the current structure. And I think if you look at the first half of that game in Munich, the difference between France and Germany was quite marked, I thought. It, yeah, it, it was a strange game in that sense, because watching it, I 100% agreed with you. I said, this is, a, this is a France team who know exactly what they're doing and who are very good at it and who I still think will win the tournament doing that thing versus a, a Germany team that you can see there's quality, but they feel strangely undercooked. Uh, but then you do watch at the sort of statistics after the game and, and, and Germany produced a significantly higher sort of XG, uh, the, the, the old expected goals than, than France did. And, you know, they... They had more shots and all this sort of stuff. Um, I, I guess part of that is because the, the disallowed goals don't count towards the XG. <laughs> Maybe they should in some way. Uh, but um, I, 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 even if the numbers... The numbers would tell you that actually Germany were, were, were good and possibly even better than France here. Uh, but you just had the feeling that France, you know, if they need to, they could have turned it up several more gears. And I thought it was interesting with France... We talk about Germany looking a bit undercooked and looking like they've stumbled upon a formation and and not you know quite being familiar with it and with each other. You know, Benzema's come back in. That's a pretty seismic change for France. And I thought it was interesting how it just looked like he'd been there for ages. Like, he just slotted into the team. It didn't look out of place. Um, I thought it was really interesting the way he was sort of looking for Mbappe's runs, you know, to play the ball quick in behind when he could. And I was really in... One of the big things I was looking forward to seeing going into this game was how that attacking trident of Benzema, Mbappe and Griezmann is going to work, who's going to take up which positions. And and I, th- I thought I mean, it was just the beginning, it was just one game, but I thought you could really see how the dynamic between those three is going to go. Yeah, I think you've, you've pointed out some of the real key players for France, but arguably the key player for the French team is N'Golo Kante, breaking up the play of the opposition. Is it time to talk of him as the best midfielder in the world, or is that going too far? I don't think it is going too far. I think it's definitely a conversation worth having. And I think what's interesting, Dotton, is in the run-up to this first game, before they eventually decided on uh, Adrian Rabiot as their closest that they've got to a Blaise Matuidi replacement, and that is a a huge thing because Matuidi was immense for them um, over the last couple of tournaments before we uh, went off to the Florida Sun. I think it's interesting that in the build-up, they were talking about maybe Corentin Tolisso, who's had an injury-affected season, who's not played a great deal of football in the last couple of months, but was very good in the warm-up games. That they talked about bringing him in, in more of a sentinel position in front of the defence, so Kante could do so effectively what he's been doing for Chelsea over the last little while. And I think that's the thing. The, the evolution of Kante is that we, we see him talk, talked about in the French press as, as a lovable mascot, which I think undercuts his value a little bit. Everyone in the squad is quite aware of his value, but because he's someone who you know, is, is not from an academy background, like a lot of those players, he didn't go through Clairefontaine, He's someone who fought his way up via Carr and Leicester, and he's got this quite modest air to him. You know, there's this sense that he got to a certain point and people in France were like, oh, yeah, this guy, he's all right. Yeah, he's brilliant. You can totally rely on him. Whereas now we're into the next part of Kante, where um, he's in this position where it's actually maybe – the team has to be built a little bit more to give him the platform to do the other stuff that he can do. Because if you just sit him in front of the defence, we've seen in the last couple of years at Chelsea, it's a total waste. And that's something that I wouldn't be surprised to see France toy with going forward. Because, of course, you know we can talk about the numbers in terms of this game. But in, in terms of the actual flow of the game, France were 
like comfortable for a one nil. I thought that they made it a little bit more uncomfortable than it could have been by totally sitting back. But I think going forward, um, it's, it's noticeable that Didier Deschamps had five changes available to him. He only made two, and one of those was in the 88th minute, 89th minute, and that was Tolisso. Tolisso will get minutes in this, I think. And um, it showed that Deschamps throwing it, throwing him on. He's he's a guy that, that he trusts. So I would not be surprised a little deeper in the tournament to see him get in the team just so Conte can do his stuff a bit more. And, you know, if you imagine Conte and, and Pogba both going box to box, that's quite exciting. Obviously, they'll have to take turns to sit uh, at certain points. But yeah, I think it's way past the point where you realise that Kante is a, a, another of these players in this galaxy of superstars that deserves his pedestal and deserves to be revered. Yeah, however good the quality of the players are in France, uh, and you know, <laughs> like Andy said, he hasn't Didier Deschamps hasn't brought on some of the other great players who are sitting on the bench at the moment. However great the quality is, and and they play such excellent football. Somehow, Paul Pogba that Andy mentioned there. Um, Lash seemed to have had a better game playing for France than he has played for Manchester United of late. He he made the goal and that that pass that he made was just sublime. But it is Didier Deschamps. We have to give him props as well. The way that he's got this team together, allowing the expression. Uh, Benzema seemed to have been playing in the French team all the time, doing defensive work and um, other things that you perhaps don't even see him do so much for Real Madrid, amongst other things. Is it time to talk of Didier Deschamps as the best coach in world football? He's won everything. <laughs> well, I think uh, these sort of who's the best conversations sort of drive me around the bend a little bit because I think it's, in, it's just impossible to quantify. Uh, but but I, what, like, what is the best? What does it mean? But But what I think... Uh, really is uh, he is he has done an incredible job with what is a very tricky uh, challenge because it is difficult being in charge of, of a group that has so many great players and and the things that he's really emphasized in his management of France uh, has been successful he's played a huge emphasis on having the right atmosphere in the squad uh, so so you know, when the squad's announced, you're like, oh, wow, why is that? Why is Sissoko in instead of like any other sort of great midfielders? Because he's a good lad and, you know, he gets uh, gets on with everyone and he's a he's a good soldier. You know, why is Zuma in when we have other great center defenders again? Because he, he fits into the group very well. And these are the sort of decisions that he's made that's been very successful. He's really placed a high emphasis on just the players getting on and having a good time, which is so important in tournaments. Uh, it really is. And okay, tactically, they're nothing fancy, but, but, but again, I think it's all perfectly suited to tournament football. Just have that defensive block that is so incredibly hard to break down. And then you have the knowledge that the individual quality you have in the team can produce something against anyone going forward. And that's such a strong starting point uh, for, for what I still believe will be a tournament winning team and what has been so in the past. I mean, the personality management side of it, I think, is is very important. And we can't overlook that um, Deschamps, from the beginning, has been part of that sort of culture. When you think of him um, being with big names in the Nantes Academy, like uh, Marcel Desailly, to being um, a Marseille player, to being a Juventus player, to win, playing in those big teams and winning those big trophies. And then what he's done at a coach, um, both with Juventus at a low ebb and bringing back Marseille, the title for the, the first time in, in, in almost two decades when we go back to, to, to 2010. I, I think that's super important because France are in this, I guess you would say in their sort of, what, probably 2017 Golden State Warriors phase at the moment with bringing back Karim Benzema. It feels like they're Hamptons five. It feels like when the Warriors added Kevin Durant. And I can understand why people think, A, that's morally wrong and it's cheating, throwing another good player into the mix of an already fantastic team. And also, you're going to have to face the, 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 the fact that 
players have to give a little bit more. It's not all going to go through one guy. So whereas Benzema is someone who's able to replace Giroud because of the way he's changed his body, as we've talked about on the OTC Euros preview, and he's able to do a lot of that stuff that he couldn't have replaced Giroud to do if we go back two or three years. Um, he also has to give a bit. Griezmann has to give a bit. And I think the fact that Griezmann and Deschamps really trust each other, that they've been through some low moments like the Euro 2016 final and some higher moments like 2018 before. And so much of that has been through Griezmann giving. And he's always someone who's given. Ever since he's been at Real Sociedad, that's why he was such a brilliant fit with Atletico and Simeone. That's also what Griezmann did in in, in Russia in 2018. And then then we see this game um, where he's gives a little bit to Benzema and Mbappe, lets them take centre stage. He's a little bit deeper and very effective in that way. And he drops and harries and tackles and does all that good stuff in the second half when France are really digging in. It comes completely naturally to him. So having so many players who are totally bought into the collective is a a massive credit to, to Deschamps, I think, and to this set of players. Lars, thank you very much. I know you, you're busy um, trying to convince the Swedes that they're going to win uh, the Euros. And, uh... <laughs> hey, Australia. Indeed, indeed. Thank you very much. Anytime. <laughs> So I suppose, Andy, that talking of Sweden or Scandinavia with Lars, we have to balance things up by talking to David Cartilage about Spain. Hello, David. Hello, gents. Nice to be with you again. Oh, my word. Sweden versus Spain. Oh, my word. Some people are talking of it as the most boring fixture of the Euros so far. What would you say? Um, i say it was as to be expected. I think you have to look at the conditions. Um, 32 degree heat in, in Sevilla. Um, you know, Sweden, uh, they've already said they came out. I think it was George Manderson came out after and he said, look, if you think that we were going to try and outplay Spain, or trying to, you know, overexert ourselves and, you know, trying to take the game to them, then you'd be wrong in thinking of that. So it kind of went back to what Spain have normally had to deal with the past, well, the past decade, I think, um, given their possession-based style. Teams very much happy to, to sit in, frustrate, and then hopefully uh, get a chance on the break to take advantage of. And, and Sweden very nearly did that. Um, and Spain had their chances as well. When you say Spain had their chances as well, David, they, they certainly mm. did. And a lot of those chances in the first half fell to Alvaro Morata. Now, it's not as if Spain don't have a glaring alternative. Gerard Moreno, the scorer of 30 club goals this season, including the one against uh, Manchester United in the Europa League final. Um, I, I'm interested to know if you think Luis Enrique for the Poland game will pick... Gerard ahead of Morata. But before we before you talk about that, let's dig in a little bit to Morata because he's always been a player I've liked. I think he, he's so many different things. Um, and he, he's been pretty good for Juventus this season. Their best moments have been when um, Morata and Chiesa have clicked. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo likes him because he's that provider type of striker as well, which Karim Benzema was for him at Real Madrid. Juventus have just renewed that loan for another season. What is it about Morata that... Why can't he finish these easy chances, basically? Yeah, the the issue is, I think, you know, he isn't that cold striker in front of goal. Very indecisive. If you look, his main flaw is in 1v1 situations. Now, that's when you have to be very, very um, clear on what you want to do as a striker, where you're going to place the ball, you know what to do, view the goalkeeper and know where you're going to place it. 
I always think he overthinks things. Um, and that's the problem um, that he's had in these situations. Now, Spain, they aren't going to create 10, 12 clear goal scoring chances in a game. It's going to be one or two. So you need a striker who is very clear um, consciously of what they're going to do every single time. If Spain had Lewandowski, it would be, for instance, it would be a completely different scenario. But Morata isn't that build. Um, I think Andy touched on it um, brilliantly um, about what Ronaldo said about him. He is very much that role-playing striker, not an actual striker. He supports others. He's always been the second man. When you look at the one chance, the, sorry, the two chances that he's had to be the main man, the main striker in a team with Chelsea, with Atletico Madrid, he he has he has flopped in both occasions, and and they haven't persisted with him. Juventus love him, and that's why he's gone back. Allegri uh, loves him. Great part of the system there. Completely understand that, but he can't be your main man right now. He's the main man for Spain, and it's the wrong thing to do. I think Luis Enrique will persist with him. Um, I don't think he's going to make a rash change. Um, and I think, he, I think he likes what Morata brings from, from those reasons that Andy stated. Now, the press in Spain, it's an interesting one with Morata. I have never known a player so, in, in my eyes, and I think in a lot of people's eyes, who is so average, okay, but gets such incredible press. Um, he really does get the smoke blown up his ass. Now, a big <laughs> reason behind that is his father is very, very deeply involved with the Madrid press. There's big links there. So Morata gets an incredible amount of press from the main dailies, Ass and Marca. Um, there was a tweet put out and an article put out just yesterday, um, a radio marker just saying, um, Morata's the best striker, um, name me two more strikers who are better. The replies then proceeded, everybody just to name a load of strikers. Now, I'd even rather have Raul de Tomas from Espanyol in Segunda in the squad than Morata. That's where I'm I'm with it. <laughs> so, okay, I don't need to ask you if you were Luis Enrique, would you pick Gerard for that second game against Poland? But if they mm-hmm. are going to persist with Morata, where do the goals come from? Is it is it Danny Olmo? Yeah, um, I, I thought um, when the squad was initially announced, I thought that Olmo pot- might potentially uh, take on that role as the goal scorer in chief. Um, and I think it's going to have to come from him. He's the one, I think, along with Pedri, who, who I know we're going to get onto in a minute, who can pull people out of position, who can, who can change the course of games. Just a little bit of unpredictability, do something a little bit different. And that's what Spain has to do more of. I'd give Pedri the ball more, I'd give Danny Olmo the ball more. Let them pull people apart. What Spain used to do under Del Bosque when they had Silva and Sesc, Iniesta all on the field at once, they used to interchange roles and positions wonderfully. And I think they need to bring that back. Yeah, this will be about Pedri, no doubt, this uh, question and your answer as well. But let's just go back to the 85% possession Hmm. that Spain had in this game. And yet they got nothing out of that. Yeah, it was. It was it's very, very difficult and it's very, very frustrating. Um, but like I say, I, I don't think people realise when you're on the field to, to how difficult it is. If you are just constantly looking um, at a whole team behind the ball, trying to break them through, it doesn't matter the quality of the players that you have. Look at the great Spain, the great golden generation. Yes, they won the World Cup, but did they ever come up against a nation and completely destroy them 5 6 nil? No, they just didn't because it's so, so difficult, even with the quality that you have, to completely turn over teams who sit in like that. Um, it, it takes a lot of mental and physical um, strength to, to see that through and, and get that goal. It's always going to be one or two nil or two one. Spain are never going to be involved in a high scoring game. It's just how the way the te- it's just the way teams set up against them. Um, it's up to Spain, I think, to do things a little bit differently. And and, and that's where I said about Olmo and Pedri. I'd give them license to roam, basically. So uh, are people justified in saying, as they always say, Spain, yeah, well, ticky-tacky, you know, and they pass the ball from one to another, side to side, but they don't achieve very much with it. Yeah, absolutely. It is completely justified. It's, it, it's hard to argue against, even if you say that teams do set their stall in a, in a deep block. Um, Spain do have to think outside of the box, and this is what they always have to do. They ha- they've got an insane amount of quality, and they should be winning these games by, by hook or by crook. But it relies on very, very clinical finishing. It relies on players doing something a little bit different and, and, and like I said, pulling people out of position uh, opponents. And David, uh, you talk about that quality. Uh, Pedri was 
really, really, really good against Sweden. Are they in a position where, and we've talked about, well, maybe maybe we haven't talked enough about the lack of experience in this Spanish squad with uh, no Sergio Ramos, no Busquets. It does feel like a team in transition. Should they be going all in and building around Pedri, even though he's only 18 years old? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I really, really would. I think uh, when he was at Las Palmas, they were happy to do it. When at Barcelona, we've also seen him take on more of the burden there and become the supply line for Messi. And I think Spain should follow suit. Um, he, he's not um, fazed by anything. There's no fear there. Um, he had 113 touches against Sweden. Um, and he and I think it really interestingly, and this is what we've just been discussing. He um t- he gave up. He ran 700 meters with the ball at his feet. That was 270 meters more than the next on the list. That was Frankie de, de Jong, um, his Barcelona clubmate. Now that just goes to show what a brilliant ball progressor is and how his ability to I, I, I think bring the ball up and just pull people out of position. Again, I keep using that because you have to do it against these teams who will just happily sit in with two banks of four. Of course, there is a, a Swedish element that I need to bring in as well, because as good as Pedri was, Alex Izak also looked impressive for Sweden as well. Uh, where might he end up next season? Dortmund reportedly have a €30 million Euro buyback clause from when he signed for Sociedad in 2019. Yeah, that's right. €30 million, um, on him, and it's still got another uh, two years before it expires. I think Dortmund have got a lot to look at. I think if they get a wild bid from ha- for Haaland um, from a Chelsea or a Man City, then they could potentially sell him for over 100 million and then bring Isaac back for 30 million. So th- that would represent good business. But yeah, he's a he's a stunning talent. I think he has absolutely everything. I think he com- could eventually be the complete striker. Um, I think his goal scoring record has been brilliant, but he's also got again so much about his game, bringing others into play and such. And. I think he showed us, as you say, the player he's becoming in this game. I mean, a few possibilities run through my mind. Firstly, the fact that Holland will probably go next summer. Maybe he's the replacement after that. Maybe if he continues his improvement. I mean, when he's been asked about it in in Spain and um, by the local media around Real Sociedad before, he's not seemed particularly keen to go back, presumably because he had quite a, a chastening experience the first time. Could Dortmund buy him back and then flip him for a profit, I suppose, if he continues? I I think you could argue that he could be sold for north of that if we get to summer 2022. My final question for you, David, on Isaac, is if he starts for Spain instead of Morata in this game, if that was somehow possible, does Spain win the game? Yes. Absolutely. I think he does everything that Morata does that Luis Enrique likes, winning the ball back, providing a support mechanism off the front line, but he also finishes. Of course, Portugal are the European champions, David. Have you been impressed by them so far? No, absolutely not. Um, they've not offered anything, I don't think, um, to suggest to be, you know, to be impressed by. I, I just wonder if we're meant to be impressed by them really because there were some strong Euro 2016 vibes there and that's something that's not um, escaped the Portuguese contingent either the squad or the the media that are following Mm -hmm. them over here in in, in Budapest I mean the second half of that game you have to feed Cristiano Ronaldo. You know, he can't get it done on his own anymore, as, as, as I wrote in the, in the Guardian earlier in the week. Um, and he was just provided with nothing in that second half um, until the last 10 minutes. And when he was given the opportunity, he took it. But, David, I, th- I thought it's interesting. When there are so many huge names in this Portuguese team and in this Portuguese squad, you know, I think it's quite conceivable, for example, that they could go deep into the tournament and we only see, say, a couple of cameos from Joao Felix, which would be a great pity, but I could definitely see that happening. I thought it was really interesting that one of the least heralded players in the squad, Rafa of Benfica, came on and with his pace made an enormous difference in that closing part of the game. Yeah, I think, you know, again, you know, he's somebody else who was derided as well. His his inclusion was, was very, very suspect. I know for Portugal, there was a lot of people who said, oh, why, why is he being involved? I think the main thing is, and you make a great point, this is 
what people expected from Portugal. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I think a lot of people got Portugal, um, you know, Euro winner uh, vibes from it. I think my vibes were more Greece Euro winners, really, uh, from, from that, to be, if, I'm, if I'm honest with you. Um, I think the issue that Portugal have and, and Santos has in terms of the pressure, so many of these players have been phenomenal, very expressive for their club teams. Thus, I think fans, neutrals, onlookers, they, they expect the players to then transfer it to be Portugal, uh, to, to, to Portugal. Um, and I think that's the, that's the big issue. And, and the young players as well, people want to see them. I thought you mentioned Rafa's cameo. I thought Renato Sanchez was the, was the, was the differential I, I personally. Agreed, agreed. Um, but David, they, they were only ever a posh Greece, please. <laughs> it's a feast of football for us at the moment, and particularly in the sort of group stages. Where would you go, first of all, Andy, for your game of the week in this tournament? Something for us for the weekend. Well, you know, uh, Dotton, it's normally obligatory to just reference your wall chart at this um, stage in the tournament before doing anything. Um, I, I'm no different in that I'm uh, referencing the, the match calendar. There, there are so many to choose from. The one for me is going to be, I think, uh, I think it's going to be uh, Portugal versus Germany. I will actually be at Hungary, France on a Saturday afternoon here in Budapest, but I'll be watching Portugal versus Germany afterwards. And I think Portugal are Germany's worst nightmare in this situation. Um, they had a lot of the ball in the second half, Germany against France, as we said with uh, Lars earlier, but didn't manage to create that much. Portugal are going to set out to spoil again. And having failed so many times against Germany in major championships in Euro 2008, in uh, Euro 20, uh, 2012, um, in World Cup 2014 in pretty spectacular fashion in Salvador, which precipitated a, a bigger collapse. I think Portugal have got a really good opportunity to find the, themselves with a the boot on the other foot and make it really difficult for Germany in this game. So I'm interested to see how it's going to pan out. And David? Um, I'm going to go for Hungary-France. Um, I think it'll be interesting in the sense that France were, I don't know, against Germany, that there were flashes there of what they could do. And I think against Hungary, they could potentially really stretch their legs quite literally in, in terms of Mbappe really uh, looking to, to get on the score sheet. He played with such a great hunger against Germany, but unfortunately, that, you know, he had that brilliant goal ruled out, Benzema's as well. So I think France will might want to put a few goals on here, but... They are going to be facing a hungry side that might. They will not want to disappoint the the crowd. Um, they will really be all all out for it. I think I think it'll have a, a cup game type feel to it. And you'll be there with you, Andy. I will be. Yes, and um, France are staying in Budapest here going going forward as well. They've decided to move their base camp from uh, Clairefontaine to to Budapest. So I might be seeing a bit more of them. Can we uh, can we expect some fireworks outside of the hotel room? Do you think? Well, not outside of my hotel room, I hope. I, I, I do like my eight hours. Uh, I've heard the fireworks are inside your hotel room, Andy. <laughs> this was a Stack Production and part of the Acast Creative Network.